Last week, I spent some time in Austin, Texas with some of our staff, most of our staff. We attended the Verge Conference at Austin Stone Church. And this church, I noticed quickly, was right in the middle of massive need. And the sanctuary, they would call it an auditorium, it was surrounded by not so much church staff offices, but offices that reflected ministries and ministries that reflected people who had gifts and skills and heart and compassion, people who had mercy gifts, people that were administrators, people that were visionaries and fundraisers. And these offices were located around the peripheral of the auditorium, uh, places, um, offices that represented ministries that were meeting these real needs, these massive needs in Austin. Illiteracy, homelessness, adoption care, foster care, human trafficking, refugee crisis. One office outside the church there, it said, open hearts, fresh starts. And I couldn't help but think. I couldn't help but dream a little bit. I couldn't help but think that's what the church ought to be about. Open hearts and fresh starts. Imagine if a church wasn't, didn't just exist, didn't just have a big building that existed where people gather for one or two hours a week. But its facilities represented the heart of God the Father. I, I was there and, and I looked at our staff. I, I watched them take notes. I watched their own hearts. I watched God, uh, what I believe God doing in them and what invariably uh, could happen in the life of our church. And I, but I looked at them. And I looked at the future and thought about what's on our heart and what we feel like's next. Even in hiring a, a family pastor, a worship pastor, a missions pastor as we gain access to the gym and seek to be a building, the building itself and the building of people here in this community where we are surrounded by such great need. I was reminded of the words that were written so long ago that we talk about some here, like for instance, Micah 6, 8, we're called to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly. Jeremiah 29, 7, we're told to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Isaiah 58 and verse 12, we're told to be repairers, rebuilders, restorers. We're looking at a rebuilding project for these weeks. We're looking at a man named Nehemiah. We're not looking at this book line by line, verse by verse. We're looking at it thematically and we're doing what Hebrews 13 says, uh, 13, 7 tells us to do, to remember our leaders who spoke the word of God uh, before you, uh, imitate their faith, their, uh, look at the outcome, look at their way of life. And we're learning so many valuable lessons for Nehemiah. I said it last week. These are lessons for people who want to build, people who have something uh, that they need to build. And can I say as your pastor, I love to hear from you uh, most of the time. But I appreciate some of your emails this week, some of the messages that you've sent me about what you need being rebuilt in your life. And one of our staff said it at a staff meeting this week, man, we, there are some prayer needs in this room. There are some folks, along with me, who need to see God do a work in their life. Something is in disrepair. Something has fallen down. Something's in rubbles. And we need God to work, don't we? In this series, it's a series for artists, for entrepreneurs, for innovators, for nonprofit and business and church leaders and future church planters. We're looking at these great lessons of this man, Nehemiah, and what he has to say for us. Somebody once said, read it this week, that any great work of God, it involves three stages. Three stages to any great work of God. Nothing mundane, but really something big. When God gives you a big, buoyant vision, there are three phases. It's impossible, it's difficult, it's done. Nehemiah, we've learned, or you've been reminded, his heart breaks. What a great quality for a leader to have a broken heart, to say, hey God, you've got a hold of me. 
that everything is not the way it needs to be in this world. Remember what Jesus would teach in the, the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This earth is not heaven. How many of you noticed that? This, the world that you and I traffic in, that we live in, uh, it's far from what it ought to be. And Nehemiah sees that, and he sees his people 800 miles away. The wall has fallen down. We've been learning what a fallen wall means back then. Imagine having no police protection, no protection at all. And those were his people. The walls had fallen. Jerusalem was in ruins. The gates had burned up. The people like dignity, violence was running rampant. And Nehemiah, he gives into the impossible stage. God, what can I do? We've said it each week. Oftentimes, God will give you a concern before he gives you a solution. Nehemiah had no solutions. He just had a broken heart. Can anybody relate to that? Is there something God's stirring up in you? He's calling you to? You have no idea. It's just, it's impossible. All you see is a desolate stretch of road in front of you, and it just says impossible. And Nehemiah's heart was broken, and we see that he weeps and mourns, he prays and he fasts. He goes to the king of kings, and he goes to the king because he was what? Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was there as a trusted confidant, sort of a prestigious position, but ultimately he was a slave. He was at the beck and call of this king of Persia, Artaxerxes, and he goes to him, and he says, hey, I need, my heart is broken. God is calling me to something, and you, had a bad, you made a bad policy decision. There was an earlier attempt to rebuild the wall. Who wants to do something a second time? Who wants to walk into something where you see, hey, this failed. This was a bad idea. This didn't work. Oh, wait, God, you're calling me to that? It's impossible. And then he enters into what the stage of it is difficult. And that's mostly what we looked at last week, chronicled for us in the second, third, and fourth chapter. Nehemiah goes into Jerusalem. He does a clandestine inspection. He just shared with a few people. You may want to do that. If God gives you a vision, you may not want to tweet about it first. You may want to pray about it. You, want to, you may want to put yourself in Nehemiah's position where uh, the bigness of God is greater than the bigness of your problem. But it still seems impossible. And Nehemiah gets a few trusted people and goes at night and he assesses the situation. You see, Nehemiah, we've learned, and if you lead a team or build, do a project in the future, you need a visionary, you need administrators, you need people that can team up. And Nehemiah had both of those gifts. He was a visionary activist. We said that he didn't just stare up the steps, he stepped up the stairs. But he had a game plan. He assessed the situation. He asked the king for his favor. He asked him for specific things that he needs. Remember, if you're going to lead something in the future, learn from Nehemiah. Nehemiah knew that a good thing, a great thing would take time, it would involve danger, and it would require financial resources. And Nehemiah was willing to ask God for all of that, to be in all of that. It looked difficult. And do you remember last week we talked about the obstacles? that he endured. Don't think for a second. Don't think for a second God's going to give you a vision, a concern, and then he opens a door, big doors open. But when that door opens, don't think that it's just going to be smooth selling because it goes from it is impossible to it is difficult. And Nehemiah, in this difficulty, we saw that he, made, he met all kind of opposition. Were, were you here last week? You know that he endured sarcasm and ridicule and mockery and anger, all kind of opposition, threats and intimidation, discouragement and fatigue. Isn't that a big one? I, I think I, 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 it lasted eight seconds, but I shared with you last week that I've gone through discouragement. And some of you took time to encourage me and to tell me about your own discouragement. But it's tough to continue on with a great task, with a vision that God gives us when we're fatigued and battling discouragement, isn't it? You just want to quit. And I asked in last week's sermon over and over again as we unfolded the story of Nehemiah, hey, Nehemiah, is it time to quit? 
And we learn what? When is it time to quit? Not when you're scared, not when there's pain, not when it's hard, not when there's opposition. It's time to quit what? When you are finished. And Nehemiah, a precursor, you know, you can find Jesus in every Old Testament book, look for him. And we looked last week that Jesus is the ultimate finisher. He's the one who went all the way, who could have quit, but endured it all and said, uh, when it was done, he said, it is finished. The saving work that Jesus did for you and I, it is finished. Will you quit a work? church when it's finished. And we learn that from Nehemiah. It is done. Do you know the story? Have you read Nehemiah? It's done. The wall is built. We looked at it last week. Sandballot. Remember Sandballot was what? What was Sandballot? Can you say it? He was a, you're scared to, aren't you? He was a Horonite. Yeah. I feel like you shouldn't say that in church or something. He was a Horonite. And Tobiah was a Ammonite. Yet you don't have anybody like that, nobody like that in your life named that way, right? But you've got enemies, you've got opposition. Sometimes the opposition is a friend who just doesn't believe that God's calling you to do what he's put on your heart. But oftentimes it's an enemy. And we said last week, Nehemiah was on the wall and Sanballat says, hey, come on, come on down to the Valley of Ono, which translated means, oh no. Let's have lunch. And I told you last week, some of you need to hear this again. Don't have lunch with everybody that asks you. Are you listening to the loudest voices in your life or the wisest voices? Because some people don't want you to dream God's dream. And some people will oppose you. Can I, can I say this? For every good work of God, for every mission that needs to get started, every church that needs to be built, every marriage that needs to be repaired, every parent-child relationship that needs to be restored, every good work of God, whatever's out there. And I, I will say to you, young people, there are ways to do church that we haven't even dreamt of yet. Whatever God is calling you to do, there will be opposition. Hey, get off the wall. And Nehemiah, what a great leadership lesson. Maybe it's one of my favorite in this book. He says, I'm not coming down off the wall. Oh, no, I'm staying here. I said to you last week, what some of you need to hear again today, that distractions can ultimately destroy you. Sanballat and all those men, and they grew in number, the opposition, the resistance grew. They, he didn't just have a few guys and they fell away. The opposition, the resistance grew, and they called out louder and louder, and it ultimately went from fatigue and discouragement to, hey, we, we want to kill you. Nehemiah, he stayed his course until it is done. We want to pick it up this morning in Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm getting a little bit further ahead. Nehemiah chapter 8 in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now, the word I'd like you to circle if you've got your own study Bible or you're using our complimentary study Bible open in your lap is to circle that word gathered. The people gathered. Let's not look past that. Do you know that that's where God works? God wants his people to gather. The people here, they gathered. They came together. When God is working, we see that he causes people always to gather. Whether it was at Mount Sinai or the tent of meeting or the tabernacle or the, the temple, the synagogues, um, in, in the New Testament, after Jesus' post-resurrection ascension, they, he told the disciples to wait in the upper room. They were a church gathered to wait on the power of the Spirit. Don't go out in your own methods, your own human effort, but wait till I do a work. Gather and seek me 
and pray. And after the upper room, they gathered, the New Testament tells us they gathered house to house, also in the temple, but they met in homes, Acts chapter two. They, they broke bread. They were devoted to each other. They were devoted to the Lord, to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, to prayer. They had gladness and sincerity of heart. The, all the signs and wonders were being done among them. No one was in need they were a people gathered. Hebrews 10, some of you know this, preachers quote this verse a lot because they want you to get you to church and get you to come back. But Hebrews 10 says, do not forsake what? The gathering. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves. The people were gathered and they were, I want, to, I want you to know the historical context. The people were gathered both in pain and both in hope. Pain because they'd been through so much. Hope because the wall had been rebuilt. Big deal, great deal. But they were still a people somewhat in exile. There were still people that were somewhat downcast. There were still a people that were being ruled by other nations. A little land, a smaller people with enemies all around them. And they were there in this pressure point. How do you deal with pressure? The pressure, that's pressure, right? If you just uh, are in a place where it's all pain and you have no hope, that's a very dangerous place, by the way. Call and get help. But if you're a place where it's just all sugar gum and lollipops and happiness and just everything's going well and all your bills are paid and people like you, you're getting more followers and things are going your way, there's not really any pain in your life. And it's where some of us are today where we're really not God seekers. We're not being real about life. We have no tasks, no vision, no God-given dream, by the way. But when you experience pain and you experience hope, there's this pressure. Why pressure? Which way is it going to go? More pain? or they're gonna be a breakthrough where I have greater hope. And there, there are the people, a people gathered. And look at Nehemiah chapter eight, look at the next couple of verses, two and three. So Ezra, we've got a new character, okay? So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, that translated as the gathering, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it, he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. A people who were gathered, a people who were gathered under the law, under the word of God. At that time, the word of God meant the law of Moses. It really it wasn't in book form. It was an oral tradition. There were scrolls in all likelihood. It was the, the Torah. It was the Moses' first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as we would know them. And the people gathered around the word of God. And here's Ezra. Why Ezra? Nehemiah was the leader. We're studying Nehemiah, right? Now we segue to Ezra. But you see, Nehemiah was the visionary activist. He was the gifted administrator. But when it came time to, for the word of God to be taught, up steps the teacher. God designed his church many, many years later to work that way. You know that? In Acts chapter 6, when the church began to grow, and don't knock a church that's growing, you actually want the church to grow. When the gospel goes forth, people's lives are changed. When the church began to grow in Acts chapter 6, they experienced growth and there was some confusion because of the growth because everybody, when they join a church, they want the church to stay the size it is when they joined it, right? But the church grew and it grew and they stopped in Acts chapter 6 and said, hey, the guys that are teaching the word need help. Let's call administrators to come on the scenes and men and women who are gifted with other gifts do that so that they can focus on the preaching of the word and prayer. 
And here is a precursor to that. Nehemiah steps back, the one who had been at the forefront, the one that God had used through his visionary activism and as a gifted administration to call people to help out. He's the one who stepped back, and Ezra steps up to read the word. And the people, they, they, uh, it says, um, if we can go back or just remember what I said, it says in Ezra chapter 8 that they heard the word. No singing as we understand it at that time or in that moment, but they heard the word and listened to the word proclaimed for from early morning to midday. Now do the math there. The Bible tells us that's six hours. For six hours, they heard the word. And folks, that's what we're gonna do today. No. <laughs> Sorry, I got a little carried away. How long, by the way, how long should a sermon be? Any guesses? Six hours. We just listened to it. We just heard it, right? A sermon should be six hours. Now, doesn't it beg the question, certainly for modern American recipients, doesn't it beg the question, how could they do this? Ever been in a situation where they go long? No, you, you haven't, have you? Yeah, it happens at some churches. But you ever been in a situation? Uh, last week, Jeff Hightower, our executive pastor, who's in Seaside, Florida right now, running a half marathon, he, uh, we were uh, subjected at this conference last week to a sermon that went an hour and 40 minutes. Daniel stayed in there. Nick stayed in there. Molly stayed in there. Jeff and I were uh, in the foyer just praying that the word would be heard by the people <laughs> who needed to hear it. And Jeff looked at me when the guy was done. He said, you ever, could you ever go an hour and 40 minutes? I'm like, dude, pray that I never do, right? Pray, amen. Pray that I, uh, pray that I never do. But how could they do this, seriously? I will tell you, Summer of 1993 in Fort Collins, Colorado, a speaker, a Christian speaker that probably most of you have heard of stood up to speak to about 12,000 Campus Crusade for Christ staff. They call it crew now. And he gave a talk, and I've never seen a situation where people were wanting more. And he gave more, and he gave more, and it didn't seem to matter. And I'm not overly emotional. I'm not a mystical person. I don't want to manufacture anything that's not there, but you just sensed a rumbling that God was doing something. Another speaker came up to speak, Nancy Lee DeMoss, and she had uh, on her agenda was to preach from, about brokenness. And she went on and on and on, but nobody seemed to care. Long story short, what happened in that gym among thousands of people, I've never seen anything like it. It became open mic night and morning and day and afternoon and next morning and next day and next afternoon and everything that was scheduled. I was supposed to do a funny skit, by the way. And everything that was scheduled for the next week was canceled. And men and women, young and old, leaders of families, leaders of ministry, people who write books and speak at conferences, stood up behind a microphone and shared and confessed their sin. And you could just come and go whenever you wanted. There are times, young people, I'm looking at a lot of college students, there's a man named David Platt who leads Secret Church. And some in your generation, some don't mind to go and sit for hours on end just to hear the word preached. Deeper preaching from God's book. It happens, but all of us have to look and say, hey, how could it happen? How could they sit for six hours? Listen, they didn't sit for six hours. They stood for six hours. So y'all stand up. We got five and a half hours more to go. They stood, how could they do that? I, I want to give you a couple of things as to why I think they were able to do that. Number one, they didn't take it for granted. 
let me state some obvious things. Maybe you'll, you've missed this, but there was no, no electricity, no air conditioner, no running water, no TV, no flat screens, no texting, no tweeting, no Facebooking, no Instagramming, no Snapchatting, none of that. And honestly, at the time, no books. And they were people at the intersection of pain and hope, and that's where God works. God works when his people gather. God works at the intersection of pain and hope. And they were gathered, and they wanted to hear from God. And let me ask you this, talking about this tribe, this nation from so long ago. You know, they're with us today, but you know history and today tells us, shows us, demonstrates that no nation, no tribe, the size of Israel is still in existence. Ever thought about that? You don't, you don't say, hey, we got somebody new in our small group. They're a Moabite. <laughs> hey, I'm really concerned my daughter's dating a Millicite. Right? You don't do that. Why? Why this people? Was it their wealth? They weren't rich. Was it their power? They weren't powerful. Was it some type of, was it their size? They were small. Greece and Egypt and Babylon and Rome all were larger nations. But why a nation so small, why would they continue if they weren't wealthy, powerful, large? They were people of the book. They had a book, and this book told them of not a little local tribal God or gods, but of a big God, a creator God who created them and who one day would redeem all things. When it talked about the past, it was accurate. When it talked about the future, it was prophetic. It spoke of a God who loves them, but a people who fall and go astray, who were stubborn people. But God's love, as Laura shared earlier, is a crazy love. It's a stubborn love. It's greater than our stubbornness. And the people wanted that, for they knew they had done wrong. And by the way, I don't think any assembly goes long if we're not dealing with stuff in our hearts. That's why that summer of 1993, I'll never forget it. Never experienced it again, but it's changed my life to want to be more and more a transparent person and want to lead a transparent congregation. And when we think we're getting too stuffy and formal and we're too busy trying to impress each other, that stuff needs to stop. Because that's not where God works. God doesn't work there. We are messed up people. You and I, I am messed up. And these people knew that they were messed up and they wanted God. They longed for it. I, I think I'm listing things now. So the first thing is they didn't, take it, they didn't take it for granted. They didn't take it for granted. There were no diversions. I'm kind of mixing these two together. There were no diversions, the things that I mentioned earlier. They didn't take it for granted. You and I, that book that you have on your lap, the words that we look at on the screen, the, the book that's on your device, do you know that men and women died for that? They died to get it to you. Do this, Google John Piper, biographies, Christian biographies, how, how we got our Bible. And take some time out and listen to him talk about Wycliffe and so many others. I know there's gonna go an hour or more, but take the time to podcast John Piper talking about how we got our Bible. You need to do this. This is your homework assignment. I'm, I'm demanding it, all right? But men and women died for that. People were in prison. People were beheaded for that. And we yawn and we take it for granted. There's 500 copies of that in this room. I've got about 120 in my library right behind the baptistry. And it's just so familiar. But for them, it wasn't familiar. There was something fresh and something new. And they wanted to hear from God. They didn't have diversions. They didn't take it for granted. And they did have a desperate hunger 
They needed God to fix stuff. That's at a great point. The intersection between pain and hope. When we need God to fix something and we come to his word being honest about ourselves. They were people gathered. They were people of the book. This dude preached six hours and they probably wanted more. And God was doing something in them. When you feel the pressure, when you're up against mockery and sarcasm, discouragement, exhaustion, fatigue, anger and opposition and fear and threats and intimidation, when God has put something in your heart and you're following it and there's pain, God wants to bring you to his people, to his people gathered, to the word, where the word is proclaimed, but ultimately God wants a response from us. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9. Because all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princess, our Levites, and our priests. Nehemiah chapter 10, 28 and 29, I believe it is. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, and the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses into the servant of God and to observe all and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. I don't have time today to explain that curse concept, but it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the way to the law and the one who would come to break that curse in Jesus. But I will tell you that that oath there, I want to say to you that when the word of God is preached, it's always for a response, always to pr promote a decision in our lives, a, a devotion. These people were devoted and they were saying, God, our way has not worked and the wall has been rebuilt and we have a chance now, even though we're an exiled people and other nations could in some way still rule over us, we wanna believe you, but we wanna confess our sin as we understand it and we wanna move past some things. We wanna be a people devoted. We wanna be people who are making decisions. When I was a little guy, the movie Grease came out and Sandy sang, to Danny, am I right, babe? Correct me. She knows all the lyrics to all the songs from the Grease soundtrack. But Sandy, Olivia Newton-John, sang to Danny, I'm hopelessly devoted to you. And there was a girl that I liked at the time. So that song, it just meant a lot to me. I liked that girl and I liked Olivia Newton-John. But I would sing, I'm hopelessly devoted, pretending I was John Travolta with my Brazilian-looking skin, right? And I would sing, I'm hopelessly devoted. But what does it mean? What does a kid understand? A kid who's just starting to like girls and trying to figure things out. What does that kid understand about being devoted? And we sing that song or songs like that and we think it's just some hopeless state, some sort of love thing that comes from outside and it's magical and we fall into love or we, we have this attraction and we're just hopelessly devoted. But a devotion is, it's a decision. There's a difference between a preference and a decision. Do you know this? A preference is, it's an emotion. A preference is, it's a condition of your emotions and it fluctuates. It's a wish. Oh, I wish, that's a preference. But a decision a devoted decision, what? It's an act of the will. 
It's a sense of, it's binding, it's a choice, it's a, it's a, it's, you make a vow and you chart a course. Imagine when I was married all those years ago when that preacher, um, and I had a preacher, I didn't marry myself, uh, we brought in a preacher to, to marry us, and when he was saying things like, I take thee to be my wedded wife, to have and hold from this day forward for better worse, richer, poor, and sickness and health, to death do his part. When we had to say those things, imagine if he said to me, do you take her? Will you live this way? And I just said, eh, that's my preference. How would that go? How would that work? This is, the people are saying, I want to make a devoted decision. As an act of the will, we want to do what God says we should do. We want to become the people that he wants us to become. And you'll see if you read uh, Nehemiah chapter 10 postscript here, you'll see that the people repented. They said they repented in several areas. Listen, church, they repented in their relationships. They, they said, we've taken people, we've gone places, we've done things with our bodies and in our relationships and in, in the name of love that has not honored you. And God, we wanna stop that. There's a different way, a better way, a higher way. There's a greater adventure, an ultimate offer, a best life, and it's not the way we've been living relationally. We haven't been living the way we need to live financially. We have not honored the tithe. We have not honored the Sabbath. We have done work on the Sabbath as a way to make more. We have exploited the poor and not cared for the needy, and that's got to stop. This is a turning point. We're going to do things the way you say they need to be done. When Jesus came, he preached the Torah. He talked of all the sacred writings before him. He said, I didn't come to abolish them, but I came to fulfill them. And when, but when he taught the Torah, he aimed at the heart. And he said, look where the law is getting you. Look how short you fall. And even you religious people, especially religious people, you've missed it. And he opened it up, this gospel message, beyond this tribe of people to the waiting world to the world that you and I now inhabit. And he said, this good news is for everybody. But can I tell you, some of us don't understand what following Jesus is about. And I pray that at Fondren, you and I, we're not victimized by it anymore. Jesus told a story about builders and those who do the word and those who don't do the word. And here's what he said in Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord and do not do what I say? You see these people, you look back at Nehemiah, what did it say that we read earlier? It said they covenanted a binding contract. They made this covenant. They decided through heart's devotion and brokenness to do what God says. It said that they will obey him. They will obey all his commands, all of his commands. We're not gonna be nitpicky. We're not, we're not gonna pick and choose. We're not gonna be selective. We're gonna do all that God says that we ought to do. And that's what discipleship is. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's how you rebuild a life. That's how you deal with the pressure and overcome the obstacles. It's saying, Lord, I want to be all that you say that I can be. I want to follow your commands. You know this, Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. We did it last Sunday in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them. Here it is, teaching them just what Leviticus, I'm sorry, what Nehemiah 10 said, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, everything. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus didn't say make converts who check a box that they believe all the right things about me. 
Can I say it again? Jesus didn't say make converts who check a box that says they believe all the right things about me. He said, do what I say. And these people who centuries earlier had sat under the word of God and said, we want to do what it says. Jesus is saying that's what a disciple is, that you hear the word, but you hear the word and you listen to it and you study it and you seek to understand it and you let it get deep into the very fiber of your being. You read it over and over again. If it takes six hours, it takes six hours, but you hear his word with a real desire that I will do what it says to do. And can I say some of you are so frustrated now because your experience is coming and hoping the sermon doesn't go longer than 35 minutes and you're in and out and nobody's hurt. And that's your experience. And Jesus is saying, I want you to observe all things. I want you to think my thoughts and do the things that I want you to do. That's what discipleship is. And that's what Nehemiah and Ezra were leading the people to do. To say all things to hear the word, and to do all things that he says. This week I read about something called um, sliding, not deciding. This is, this is a research from marriage. A, a team of researchers, not religious people, not repressive people, just people that want to get insight on this generation and marriage and love and relationships. They studied couples who cohabitate, translation couples who live together. And it's, by the way, this generation, it's 1,500% more common today than it was 30 years ago. And it, it, the interview says that the study, the research showed that two-thirds of couples today say that it's probably better to live together before getting married. Again, these aren't religious people, this, the results of this survey. But they said that the opposite is true, that couples who cohabitate, who live together before they're married, are more likely to be dissatisfied with the relationship and have higher rates of divorce. And they went on as they interviewed these couples, they came up with this concept, sliding, not deciding. And the idea is, the, the reality is, a couple will date, then they'll sleep together, then they'll start sleeping over, and then one of them will move in, but they never go through the process of saying, hey, am I exclusively, permanently committed to you? And what does that look like? Instead of I do, they say maybe you'll do. And I would say, as a church, I would not want to be the pastor or to lead a church that's a sliding, not deciding church. I don't want us to be a people who say, I'll pray if I need something. I'll give if I have a little extra. I'll study if the mood strikes. Jesus Maybe you'll do. He calls us to decide not to slide. I know of a couple. They've been married 45, probably now 46 years. Met them once, know about them. Sylvester and Barbara. Sylvester's an athlete, played some ball back in the day out west, in the northwest. The story of their courtship began on a blind date. Now, back then, blind dates were really blind dates. He had not seen her. She had not seen him. She opens the door, and she knew he was an athlete, but she opened the door, and she was surprised to see that he kind of let himself go. A real big guy wasn't taking care of himself. She was surprised and confused. She had not seen him. He had not seen her. Sylvester jumps out of the bushes and says, hey, Barbara, let's go on our date. She needed clarification, right? 
You see, Sylvester had sent a good friend of his. He talked in a good friend of his to go to knock on the door, and if Barbara was ugly, he would go out on a date with her. (laughs) Sylvester says, hey, here I am. Let's go. In a world of non-commitment and fear, Jesus says to us, I see you, I know you, I choose you. My love is greater than any that you'll ever know. And he beckons us to make a decision for him. We're going to close this message, Observing Communion, where you'll be asked to stand in a moment and to make your way to a station located in the balcony in the lower level all around the room. For every believer in Jesus, for everyone who has at some point said, I've decided to follow Jesus, to observe all that you teach and that you do, this is one of those really important acts. At Fonner Church, we don't have a lot of rituals and formulas and stuff. We, we do baptisms. We do communion. We do this to observe what Jesus taught us. And today, it's a chance for us to respond to say, God, I thank you. I thank you that you love me, that you know that I'm ugly. You already know that. You don't have to play any games. You know who I am. You see all my ugliness, and you love me anyway. Jesus has made a decision on you. Have you made a decision about him? He's the rebuilder, the repairer, the restorer of what's broken in your life. I want to ask our team to come as they began to play and our leaders to make their way to the stations around the room. I'm going to ask that you pray with me.